Acts is a church that bridges ethnicity, economic status, and generations together. So sometimes it's kind of hard work finding common ground where all of those things can mix. Um, but there is nothing quite like Christmas to bring, <laughs> to bring everybody together. So this is especially relevant, uh, relevant for us today. Uh, for the last several weeks, we've been in Philippians. So just to kind of recap... Paul is talking to the church at Philippi about a life of delirious joy. He keeps on talking about rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Um, I share this joy with you. Uh, He's writing this from prison, okay? So when we talk about uh, delirious joy, uh, Paul is a perfect example of that. and, And we are learning how to have delirious joy through this book, Um. Christmas, obviously, is associated with a lot of joy. Uh, so at Christmas time, we talk about celebrating Christmas all year. This is not a one-day thing, you know. Christmas is, sp- spans all year round. Um, but, you know, we really only say that at Christmas. It's almost taboo to, you know, talk about Christmas in July, to put up Christmas trees uh, in July, and to have lights and all that, all that other stuff. Um, it just doesn't really happen Uh, too often. But when we read this passage today in chapter 4, it has massive implications for Christmas. It's talking about the presence of Christ, and we celebrate that. First, the implication of joy itself. Um, So in Philippians 4.4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, right? Joy is a huge theme uh, that, that threads through the book of Philippians, also a huge theme for Christmas. But also, Paul talks about gifting, gifts at Christmas. Um, he says in verse, in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Literally, what that means is be willing to yield to others, be willing to put their needs before yours. And isn't that kind of the nature of gift giving, right? You are putting someone before yourself. You are giving them something, at least ideally. And this idea of yielding, I, I can't even hear that word anymore without thinking of traffic circles, which I've never had a problem with until we rented a house in Plum Creek. Um, uh, like they've always seemed like a good idea to me. But let me tell you, if you are driving through Plum Creek when school is starting or getting out, you better make your peace with God because it's done, like we, Lydia and I will walk to school and we can't even, like we won't even cross at the traffic stop. I got to cross in the middle of the street. I can't cross at the traffic circle because, you know, it's, it's not yielding to each other. It's see who can, you know, shoot the gap and squeeze in there as, as fast as, as possible. Um, now, when I, am, when, when I am yielding in that situation, especially when I'm driving, I have two main problems when, you know, when we're coming up to that situation. First is, is pain, and second is pride. Pain and pride, as far as I can tell, are probably our biggest obstacles when we are striving to yield to other people. Because we want to say, hey, that's my right of way, or that jerk just cut me off, or, you know, when's it ever going to be my turn, right? Um, 
outside, outside Plum Creek on Burleson, there's a big traffic circle. And when there's a line at that uh, railway, you know, the train's coming through and a huge line builds up. It just seems like these cars never, never end. So you're just like, man, when am I going to get to go again? Like stuff is building up, but there's not like that weave in and out. It's just, it's just a steady stream until, until someone lets you in or until it's all over and, it, and you're good to go. But if you're focused on your own needs, your own priorities, your own uh, plans, it's very, very, very difficult to yield to the needs of others. And we kind of see that at Christmas time a little bit. Christmas is one of the busiest times of the year. We got lots of things to do, lots of places to go. So it's very difficult to focus on others when we're focused on our own plans. However, at least at Christmas time, there's this concept of giving gifts, right? So to some extent, you at least have somebody else on your mind. In the summertime, which rivals Christmas in my opinion, what do we got? You're out of school. This is my time. I got vacations. My time, right? I'm making my plans. I'm getting ready for fall. I need to make sure everything is ready for me. And we don't have that gift giving to fall back on to kind of stem the tide um, of, of, you know, self-focus that, that tends to happen. So what I think we need to do is put a little Christmas in the summer. And I think we need to know some delirious joy this morning. I think we need to give some selfless love and figure out what that actually um, means in Christ. Because as we've defined delirious joy, what makes it delirious is that it kind of sits above our circumstances. So this eternal reality of Christ kind of provides the umbrella for the immediate reality of the flesh. Well, I'm in pain, I, I, I need something, I'm hurting, I'm hungry, whatever. There's an eternal reality of Christ that kind of sits above all that, that lets us feel joy even in the midst of our own need. So when we read Paul's words about rejoice in the Lord, again, I will say rejoice, we talk about this delirious joy that Paul has. He's sitting in a Roman prison for the umpteenth time. This dude's been beaten, he's been stoned, he's been almost killed, he's been disowned by his people. He has been cast out. And, and I don't think he's going to these prisons because this is the perfect vacation spot. I don't think he's in this life because this is what makes him feel full and happy and, and, and just overflowing, right? There's, there's got to be a deeper reality that sits underneath Paul's trials. He's not doing this for himself, in other words. He's yielding to someone else's need. He's planting churches. He's writing letters from prison for the sake of people who need the gospel. So he recognizes the fact that their eternal need, not knowing the gospel or, or, or suffering or wanting to fall away or wanting to just give up and say it's not worth it, their eternal needs are more pressing and more urgent than his immediate comfort, right? So he is writing these things. He's letting his reasonableness be known to everyone, his willingness to yield for their sake. He's planning churches. Now, again, this, this command sticks with me. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Be willing to yield for everyone. Two points in there stick with me. First of all, yielding, because that doesn't sit naturally, 
right? We want to go. We want to do. We want to be first. We don't naturally, like the inclinations of our flesh, do not want to let other people cut in and have their way and all that stuff. Sacrifice is not our default position, okay? So right away, that pain and that, uh, that pain and that pride makes yielding difficult. The second point that sticks with me is that word everyone. Everyone. Be willing to yield to everyone. Well, what if they don't deserve it? What if they cut me off? What if, what if they're receiving from everywhere? You know, I mean, what if stuff is falling into their lap? What if, what if they have means and I don't? What's the qualification? What's the cutoff? He doesn't say. Yield to everyone. Now, that sticks with me because I'm a big proponent of self-care and emotional care and, um, you know, not burning yourself out and, and watching your health. I'm a big proponent of that. And yet, on the other hand, I also recognize the fact that more often than not, we tend to give from our leftovers. We love from our leftovers, not from our first fruits. You see what I'm saying? We, we say, well, I can't give or I can't do that. I can't sacrifice from this position because I have nothing, I have nothing left. And, and I think that's, that is telling in itself. You're already looking at the leftovers. What can I give out of what I have left? I don't have anything left, so I can't give right? It's much more challenging to take an inventory and say, okay, well, if I don't have anything to give, how can I reorient my stuff? How can I reorient my life so that I have more to give, right? What bills am I currently paying that are not necessary? Do I need a new car? Can I get by with the use? Do I need cable? I don't know. Can I, with a little bit more planning, set my meals out for the week instead of spending more going out, right? We would much rather say, well, no, I need this. I need to do that. I need to do this to take care of myself, right? And then I'll give. But lo and behold, I have nothing left to give. Why? Because I've taken care of myself with my first fruits instead of doing the challenging work of taking that inventory. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, everyone does that. But I'm saying that it would, we would much rather justify our position and get complacent with what we are already doing than do a challenging work of saying, maybe I can move some stuff around. Maybe I can make some more sacrifices. Maybe I can stretch and challenge myself a little bit more so that someone else has more. And I'll tell you how this goes for me. When I start getting complacent and when I start getting secure and comfortable with where I am, I'm kind of satisfied in my own little sphere of righteousness and saying, oh, I've done enough already. Here, here's what it sounds like. When, when Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, yield to everyone, I start thinking to myself, surely God doesn't actually mean everyone. I mean, he, he can't possibly mean him or her, or them. They can take care of themselves. 
Surely God doesn't mean everyone. That's too, it's too much. It's too hard. There's, there, there's too much involved. And I'm already, I'm already challenged. I can feel myself starting to get complacent. I can feel myself starting to sit still. And what Paul presents through his life in this delirious joy is a sense of urgency for those in need. And he also qualifies what those needs are. Right? Just because someone says, I need something, doesn't mean they actually do. All right? But also, just because someone says, I'm good, doesn't mean that we shouldn't step up to help them. Right? There has to be this relational sense of when to yield, when not to yield. Um, you know, we have to take care of our lives, but we also have to push the limits of the gospel. There has to be some urgency there to say, well, they'll hear from somebody else, or how could they not have heard of Jesus already? He's all over our culture. To just sit complacent and say, I don't need to do that. Surely God doesn't mean everyone. That is, that's complacency. Here's the other qualification that I need to bring up. I'm not talking about yielding for the sake of peacekeeping. Okay? If somebody is stuck in a lie or stuck in sin, you don't yield to that just to avoid a confrontation, okay? Jesus went to the cross to die for the world, to be a sacrifice for the world and to rise for the world. Here's what he did not do. He did not say, it would be easier for me to go to the cross and just die for them than to confront their sins, right? He's not yielding to our sin. He's not saying, oh, it's okay, I'll go ahead and die for you so you don't have to worry about that. He's not yielding to sin. He's yielding to us. He's yielding to our needs for forgiveness. He's not saying, I love your sin more than I love confrontation with you. He's saying, I love you. I'm going to show you what it means to yield to the utmost I'm going to show you what it means to give and give and give until you have nothing left and then to be vindicated by God for that level of sacrifice. I'm going to show you what provision at God's hand actually means when he raises me from the dead. He's not saying, I don't want confrontation or this is not worth it. He's saying, this is what it means to yield. Like uh, Hedera read this morning from chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me be absolutely clear. He did not have to do that. He had the right of way. You see what I mean? He didn't have to sit back and say, go ahead, I'm going to sit here for you so that you can continue to live. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I have the right of way. I'm the only one here who has the right of way, right? You all need to hang back, take stock of your lives, and just sit in this until you figure yourselves out. He could have said that, right? 
He didn't have to come to earth. He didn't have to take on flesh. We might not have a Christmas if he decided not to yield. He had every right of way. But instead, he yielded not to our sin, but to us. Now, let me ask you something. When two people think that they have the right of way and both proceed into an intersection, what happens? What? They, they crash. There, there's destruction. There, there are accidents. There is danger and people are put in harm's way. And if Christ had said that, if he had said, I deserve to go, there would be destruction. If he had said, I deserve to sit back in heaven, I deserve this glory, I deserve to watch you destroy yourselves, and we're sitting there going, now we have the right of way, we're right, we're good in everything that we say and do, there would be destruction. But he yielded himself, not to our sin, but to our needs. He died for us. And that's what Paul is bringing up with Euodia and Syntyche. They're in some kind of fight. He, uh, Paul's not clear on what they're fighting about. I assume that it's over whose name gets mispronounced the most. But Paul, it, they're, they're arguing about something. And Paul is saying, you know, not just keep the peace. He's saying, let your reasonableness be, be known to everyone. Yield to each other. This is not an issue of salvation, right? Christ was not silent in issues of salvation, right? He told the truth. He spoke the truth. He would not yield on the fact that we're sinners and need a Savior. He didn't yield on that. But instead, he sacrificed himself for us, not so that we would stay in what we were doing, but so that our lives would change, so that we could know what it would be to yield to each other. And here's the thing. Jesus, in his human nature, experienced pain and pride, okay? He was tempted. He was threatened. He begged in the garden that this would not have to happen, right? He was subject to pain and pride just like we were. He was tempted in the wilderness with issues of pride, right? Satan's promising him the world, and he could have said yes. He was tempted in those regards. The the difference between him and us is when his threshold of pain and pride were attacked, he did not fall. He wasn't overcome by it. He perfectly yielded. Now, your threshold of pain and pride will be attacked. You will be called to yield to somebody else. Now, how do we make sure that that happens? How do we sit secure? in this delirious joy that we would be willing to undergo those sacrifices, that we would be willing to wave someone on and put their needs ahead of our own. We need, when people keep coming and you keep saying, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, there will be a level of pain and frustration and discomfort that comes with that. There will be impatience. There will be resentment that builds with that. How do we overcome those things? We need comfort and joy. 
Those are the themes of Christmas, right? Comfort and joy. Because the Lord is at hand, Paul says. The Lord is near. Psalm 34 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Doesn't brokenheartedness come with sacrifice? Of course it does. So we sacrifice, then comes brokenheartedness, and God is near in that situation. He is present. What is, um, what is Matthew promise us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is who he is. He is the presence of God in our lives, bringing comfort and joy in spite of these circumstances. This is why we can celebrate these themes of Christmas all year, because he is with us. Now, so when Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, in other words, what you have seen in the example that I have put forth, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That is terrifying. He's sitting in a prison. He's been beaten and scourged and bleeding and at the point of near death and he's saying, what you saw me doing, you do that terrifying. And then this promise that God will be with you, terrifying. That we would have to be put in a position where we trust God to fulfill his promises. But that's who he is. Emmanuel is God with us. He is the very presence of peace. Now my immediate fear is if I'm yielding to everyone, I'm never going to get to go. It'll never be my turn. I'm always going to be suffering. What we need is someone to let us in, someone to yield to us. We, wa- we get walked on, so we walk on other people. We get hurt, so we hurt. We learn how not to yield. What we need is to be taught to yield. What we need is the power to yield. Christ breaks that cycle by actually yielding to your needs, to my mind, to to my needs. That's why he was born. That's why he ministered to the world. That's why he died for the world, is to yield to our needs. He came as the Savior we needed. We do need. And only the Son of God could walk away from that victorious. And his victory becomes our victory We carry that victory with us. Why? Because he is God with us. He is present with us. All the peace, all the comfort, all the joy that is present in him is present in us through him. That's what we celebrate today. God's presence of peace that is nearer to us than we think. So when you're looking for like this peace, this comfort, God, I I feel tapped. I don't feel like I can give anymore. Where are you? It's as close as your nearest brother and sister in Christ. And even nearer than that still. Because what does he say in Galatians 4? Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We celebrate Christmas all year because God is coming to you every single day, every moment. He is never leaving. He is always present 
It is in his name itself. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So hear these words to the church in Thessalonica. God ends his letter to, the, or Paul ends his letter to them with the blessing of God. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Would you please rise and pray with me?